Welcome to International History Declassified, the podcast that provides an insider's view of the history of the post-war world and the historians who study it. International History Declassified is a production of the History and Public Policy Program at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Hello, and thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Peter Biersteker. And I'm your co-host, Keon Byrne. The Wilson Center's History and Public Policy Program uses archival sources and history to improve understanding of important global dynamics, trends in international relations, and U.S. foreign policy. The program is home to the Digital Archive, a free online resource of newly declassified materials from around the world, available and accessible at www.digitalarchive.org. In each episode of International History Declassified, Peter and I will sit down with historians to discuss their work and experiences researching in the field of international history. By examining their sources and methods, we hope to share with you the latest research being done on many different events, periods, and places that help shape our understanding of the world today. Onur Isji is Assistant Professor of International Relations and Director of the Center for Russian Studies at Bill Kent University in Ankara, Turkey. His teaching and research focuses on Russo-Turkish relations, diplomatic history, and the history of the Cold War. His recent book, Turkey and the Soviet Union During World War II, Diplomacy and International Relations, combines these subjects into a fascinating study of a crucial period in Turkish history. Onur, welcome. Welcome. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, We really appreciate having you here, and uh, I thought we'd start out by um, getting a chance to talk a little bit about the Center for Russian Studies at Bill Kent. Can you tell us about your project there and what you're doing? Um, sure. Uh, I, well, I joined Bill Kent in 2014, uh, fall of 2014. And when I, when I arrived, uh, there was this Center for Russian Studies that had been dormant for about 10 years. It was established by Norman Stone, uh, uh, a brilliant scholar, but also a controversial name. Uh, he, uh, he was a speechwriter for Margaret Thatcher. He's a real Cold War person, and he's one of the greatest names in on the Eastern Front, uh, uh, First World War. Anyway, he uh, he established the center, but then you know after he left, the center was dormant for various reasons. You know, Russia was not. This was pre two thousand fourteen, so Russia was not you know as uh, as popular, let's say. Uh, but when I joined Bill Kent's department, it was, there was already talk about the Second Cold War. Uh, the annexation of Crimea by the Russian Federation, uh, you know, all these things came after one another, I guess, around the time of the Sochi Olympics. And so what, what happened was uh, I had the center uh, and I, I was doing Russian history, uh, arriving into an international relations department. Um, I, I looked for reasons why the center was not active for so long. And I realized that it was a, a sort of a, a struggle between IR people and historians uh, who established uh, the Russian center. Battle as old as time. Exactly. <laughs> so it's about theory uh, versus, I don't know, archives. Uh, and, and what happened was apparently at one point in time, the Russian center started um, studying, well, you know, tr- trivial for, from the IR perspective subjects, like real micro histories. And, you know, the IR department obviously said, we, we don't need you guys anymore. And uh, so I... You know, I, I, I moved forward uh, with promises of making this, you know, as a historian, I had no you know, credit, obviously, in the eyes of the, uh, the art department, but, but, but I, I made promises to make it relevant. And so we, we, 
you know, the Cold War almost presented itself to us. And, and I was really fortunate because the IR department started hiring more people. And of those people, two of them were Russia specialists. So all of a sudden, uh, you know, at the heart of Ankara, we have uh, four people in the same department doing Russia, which is, you know, a big number even compared to U.S., you know, some prestigious U.S. institutions. So we moved forward and we, we started doing the Cold War. Uh, and, you know, and, and it's, uh, this was two years ago, I guess. And we, uh, you know, we were doing pretty good things until COVID hit us uh, last uh, March, like everybody else. And then we're now, you know, sort of transitioning into a, a virtual format. Uh, and we have uh, some events coming up uh, with some speakers lined up. Uh, they're, they're all going to be virtual in the, in the fall semester. And uh, in the spring. That's great. Uh, that's fascinating. I'm, I'm really interested in, in the, uh, in the, in the work, uh, uh and, and sort of, and working closely with, uh, with the, uh, international relations theorists and, and, uh, and, and developing a good positive working relationship. I do think cross-disciplinary, uh, engagement and interaction is always good for, uh, for both fields. Mm-hmm. Um, Kian may disagree. Uh, <laughs> uh, so your, your work, uh, your work covers a lot of Turkish relations from, uh, the Ottoman period through the Republican period, through the cold mm-hmm. war, um, this is a bit of a broad question here, but I'm I'm not a, a an expert on Turkey. I'm I'm curious how has the relationship with uh, Russia developed and survived sort of the myriad changes in in both leadership and and significant world events that occurred over that time. Um, and can you can you speak a little bit to to how you view Turkish Russian relations today? Wow, uh, uh, thank you for asking that. Actually, a uh, little bit of sort of Department of Self Promotion here. Two weeks ago, <laughs> no, it must have been three weeks. Three weeks ago. Uh, Diplomatic History published an article that I co-authored with a colleague of mine that Kian knows very well, Sam Hurst, who is the uh, Associate Director of uh, the Center for Russian Studies uh, at Bill Kent. And for a very long time, we've been struggling to show the broader significance of our works individually, which overlap, which is really a coincidence, a very fortunate coincidence. But Sam does interwar years. I do World War II and the Cold War. These are historical subjects. In, in, in themselves, and they build on one another. But the one question that we constantly face from people, uh, let's say sometimes academics, sometimes our colleagues, but let's say non-Russia, non-Turkey specialists, we're like this particular question. So we forced ourselves to write, you know, an article uh, of 100 years of Russian-Turkish relations. And the thread that we found was uh, sort of drive for development, that still continues even after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So it started immediately after World War I. And, and for those people who are still puzzled or, or still befuddled and trying to like struggling to make sense of how come these two rivals, geopolitical historic rivals, can still cooperate even after you know the downing of a Russian jet in 2015 in November. Uh, the assassination of Andrei Karlov, the Russian ambassador in Ankara. How could that, you know, sustain? When, when everyone was talking about, you know, war, Third World War, uh, these doomsday scenario entertainers, we, were, we watched it from afar and said, you know, I think these guys are going to manage this, uh, Ankara and Moscow, like they, they, they have been, basically, since uh, the First World War. And we started questioning what is... Because when you read Russian-Turkish relations from any uh, venue, like academic journals or popular political uh, magazines, you come across this this puzzle. 
conflict and cooperation, but nobody will really tell you how the two can coexist, except that they will tell you they just coexist, uh, right? And 99% and of those academic articles or popular political uh, news pieces, op-eds, will, will, will contain this, this critical line in their opening paragraphs. And I'm not exaggerating, like we even did that, right? These historic rivals who warred with one another for, I don't know, centuries, um, except like our piece was different than the rest of them in the sense that we were trying to answer one question, why did not these two guys did not really fight for over 100 years, for exactly 100 years, actually, right? Uh, it, it began in 1920. And how is it that they constantly manage their political, ideological, geopolitical differences, right? So the thread was, I think, we, we, we offered an economic approach. And the short answer to your question, I'm sorry, this is, you know, you asked me about an article. That it's just, a big question. It was yeah. a big question. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and, and like 100 years. I think my answer would be uh, the drive for the drive for achieving parity with the West. So I would say anti-Westernism, but people will not get the nuances of this, you know, anti-Westernism, such as, for instance, we're saying both Turkey and Russia do not actually prioritize one another. Their priority is still the West. Even Putin, you know, for Putin, the West is extremely important. And for Turkey, the compass, even with the current government, is always, you know, the West. It, there's this almost historical, um, this is a, 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 what you might call geohistory, really, rather than geopolitics, because this is what you accumulate over time. And you prioritize your relations with the West, but your whole resentment, or as the French would say, resentment, is the fact that you are alienated from that system since World War I. And we, you know, I, you know I, I'm giving credit to Sam and my work here because we did so much archival research to bring together this thread. And at some point, you know, the archival uh, documents becomes inaccessible. Right, you can you can't find documents from the 1990s, you know, 2000s. You know, that's not history. Um, and so, you know, it was very difficult. We went into like state records, like official state, you know, records, and and try to think that you know we answer this question in 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 simple terms of development and why to achieve, to achieve uh, Western power. So I, I want to get into the documents and the research stuff in a minute, but um, just to to kind of build off of what you were saying. Is it fair to say the issue uh, for Turkey is really more of a balancing act? I think they find themselves sort of like Iran in that position where they're kind of at a crucial geographic position in the region. And they're sort of caught in between these conflicts between the great powers. Um, is that a fair sort of comparison for one and, and kind of a way to, to describe the issues that Turkey faces in the 20th century is sort of balancing the East and the West pressure um, mm -hmm. and how that sort of kind of developed into where Turkey is today? I mean, Iran, if you're studying Turkish history, uh, Iran is uh, inevitably you're going to get into Iranian history and, and Turkish-Iranian. So it's a, it's a good comparison. There's that saying in Turkish that you can't really speak about Turkey without speaking about Iran and vice mm -hmm. versa, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I would say that their experiences uh, were a little different in the sense that Turkey's own experience with the West is also different than Russia, than Russia's is. Turkey, Russia was a more integral part of the West uh, before the Soviet Union. So in the imperial times, it was, right? 
the Turkish, the, so the Ottomans joined the, the family supper table, you know, right after the Crimean War uh, and became part of, you know, this European uh, diplomacy with the Eastern question, right? But since the, the proclamation of the Republic, if you look at the experiences of Iran, Turkey, Russia, Turkey is institutionally much deeply connected to uh, the West, both in mm -hmm. terms of its mm -hmm. membership in, you know, NATO, but also its... Uh, well, extended adv adventure with uh, with the European Union, the accession uh, process right. that mm. that is not having, let's say, a high moment <laughs> these days. Uh, but it's still there, uh, technically. Uh, yeah. Turkey is still a candidate, um, uh, you know, and, and for for membership. Um, and I think that compared to those cases, Turkey, uh, in a way, pays for its relationship with Russia mm. uh, by having this enormous trade volume with Western countries. I mean, Turkey has an enormous trade volume with, with Russia, but it's not a very balanced trade volume. If you look at Turkey's trade volume with uh, just United Kingdom, Germany, and the United States, uh, it's, it's enormous, right? It's, uh, mm -hmm. And it's much more on equitable, let's say, terms. Uh, with the United States even, you know, since the, the past two years, I mean, our political relations are not doing well, but the economic relations, I just checked this, uh, like, for fact, just to compare it with Russia, and, mm -hmm. and I saw that, that it was a much more balanced trade volume, almost matching what Turkey has with Russia. But because we sell agricultural products uh, to Russia and have other investments and buy value-added gas and oil and those kinds of things, it's very asymmetrical. Uh, as my colleagues in the IR department would, would say, I love that word. <laughs> it's, yeah, absolutely, and it, it does it does a, a lot of work here to describe the uh, the the, uh, the, the, the the imbalances, if you will. Um, yeah, but it's interesting. I I, I do think it's a uh, both geographically and politically positioned to to be a um, a really in a unique position. Uh, and I think Keon's question really got to the heart of that uh, a moment ago. Uh, if I could switch gears just a little bit and talk about the process, uh, talk about what research is like and what the research climate is like today in Turkey. Um, can you just go into a little bit about your experiences uh, working in the Turkish archives and working with, uh, with uh, any Turkish documentation you've, you've gotten your hands on? Um, right. Just to save some time, let me just start off by saying that I came into Turkish history as a latecomer, if you will. I studied uh, Russian history um, at, at Georgetown, and even before that, I was already a Russianist. Uh, and you know, I, I was trained by Russian historians. Uh, and then, my when my advisor unfortunately passed, I studied with Richard Steitz, who passed in two, who, uh, who died, sorry, in two thousand ten. Uh, and I. Uh, I was in search for, for something, and the, one of the last conversations I had with Richard uh, at Martin's Tavern, actually, on Wisconsin Avenue on Tuesday nights, <laughs> we had the you know historians, you know, geek crowd coming together. He actually said or offered making a switch from late imperial history to 20th, but real 20th century history, uh, and also add a Turkish spice to it. He said, you know, in this country. Uh, which meant he meant by United States said, you know, you're a Turk from uh, from from Turkey uh, doing Russian history in the United States like that. Uh, you know, just wait and see what you know your own department will assign you with in terms of teach tech serving as a TA. And it was all like Middle Eastern history. And um, when I finally got to teach my own classes at Georgetown, again it was Cold War in the Middle East or Middle East something. And you know, in a way. Uh, Richard was right. I mean, and so I, I decided to study uh, 20th century history 
and I, I looked at Russian archives and Turkish archives and the Turkish archives, when I was doing research there, it was in, in, in Ankara because the Turkish archives have two components, the Ottoman archives, which are in the old Ottoman capital, which is where I'm here right now, Constantinople, Istanbul, and the Republican archives are in Ankara, right? When I was doing research in the Republican archives, people were like, are you crazy? Like, nobody actually works here. Only very few people. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, let me give, tell you exactly why, because nobody was interested in, 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 in modern uh, Turkish history. There are some examples in the U.S. coming up, you know, some, some scholars recently who started doing 20th century Turkish history. But even in the U.S., let alone this country, curriculums of Turkish history stops uh, with the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. And so over time, in 10, in 10, 15 years, I saw more people working there. The very short answer is it's very easy to get into the Turkish archives. It's very difficult to find a decent, juicy uh, archival material. Mm. It's the mm -hmm. opposite of what you will see in Russia. It's very difficult to get in, but once you're in, you actually get very valuable material. So in Turkey, you need to be extremely tolerant and, and patient like a dervish. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> go through an enormous amount of unnecessary materials uh, to finally, you know, find this one piece of document that has some sort of valuable information. And is, is there anything you would, you would like to see changed in, in the way that the Turk Turkish archives work? Uh, any, anything you would think would make it uh, a more positive experience or, or more beneficial for researchers like yourself? I mean, it's, it's like a chicken and egg question. They need to see first uh, <laughs> uh. that some very good works are appearing from, uh, in the English language or any language, but also Turkish language, that valuable works, not like bias. I mean, obviously, if you're a state, if you're acting with state reflexes, the your, your immediate reaction, especially in a country like Turkey, is that you're a little bit reserved. Like, is this information, piece of information that I'm about to declassify, can it turn around and you know, hurt me, right? And I think Kian here uh, experienced part of it when we organized at the Russian Senate uh, in cooperation with the, with the History and Public Policy Program uh, in October. A part of the reason was to show in the, the Turkish archives and to meet with people and I, I sent, I don't know how many follow-up emails, Kian, uh, to the people that we were trying to beg uh, to open. And it will happen. The second thing, and that's the final point I want to make, that, uh, that they need to realize is that Turkey's own story right now is being told through American or British archives that are more accessible. So we're talking about what Ankara thought in a strategic sort of decision-making moment from the American archives. And that's obviously not the whole picture do you understand like you need to get mm -hmm. uh, think about the, the the cuban missile crisis or you know what the, the turkish government thought about the jupiters and removal mm -hmm. of jupiters from turkey you know you you don't you need the turkish archives for that not Brit what the british thought of what the turks thought of do you understand it's a uh, no absolutely yeah absolutely that's that and then sort of getting getting a uh, dialing down on on those uh those voices that often get sort of lost in the shuffle or throughout these you know 40 50 years of cold war history or history of the the cuban missile crisis are are uh are are you know not as dis not, i don't want to say discounted but but not uh as as um as valued as or as used as uh russian and u.s sources but i, I do think you know uh, Cuban resources, Cuban sources, uh, Turkish sources help paint a much fuller and much broader picture of uh, of the mm -hmm. event uh, and and benefits all all historians. Absolutely. And people need to go out and get your book so that they can support good archival research in Turkey and get another one out. And then, 
I'll show try. the archivists I mean, that there's there's a lot of interest in the subject. Thanks, that's I, I do think that's that's interesting. Just noting on something you said there, sort of you know uh, appealing to the archive, to your own, to the the state's own archive, to basically say, hey, there's a there's a history here. There's a story being told. Uh, our voice is is missing from it. Uh, our history is is not in this. Let's fix that. Let's let's uh, let's let's correct that. Um, and and I, I am hopeful that you know work works like yours and and other colleagues who are, who are uh, you know utilizing the Turkish archives, uh, they will see the benefit of of that and and uh, will will lead to to more openness and and uh, and accessibility and uh, everything going forward. No, absolutely. And they need to see that this is not a. a, a, a simply a diplomatic history story, right? They're always thinking, you know, we're declassifying kind of this sort of moments where, you know, co correspondence between, uh, you know, embassies and the foreign ministry, which may contain sensitive information. We're saying, you know, we're not, we don't just need that. We need economic data. We need, you know, the you know, Cold War studies or, you know, Turkey's recent past should be studied through, you know, of a, a variety of sources. And it's not just diplomatic history that historians are interested in. Uh, it's not just like, you know, this conspiratorial narrative deconstruction. It's not like that. We need, like, development, for instance, is an up-and-coming, like, it's a very important part of Cold War studies right now. I would say almost as important as nuclear, uh, you know, studies or proliferation, uh, et cetera, because people are interested in what drives third world countries today. Is it ge geopolitics or is it, you know, is it is it development, right? Or do they go hand-to-hand? -hand? And for that, you need other types of sources that these guys sometimes don't really understand. Why do you need that? I'm saying because that's, you know, if you're an environmental historian, you would still need uh, sources from the Ministry of Development, uh, right? We have that. Uh, anyway, so that's... Uh, no, I think, I think that's an excellent point. I mean, and I think that's sort of where the field in general is headed, right? I mean, uh, people are moving away from relying just on, you know, high-level diplomatic history and sort mm -hmm. of trying to get the full picture of the situation um, everywhere, right? Not just in, in the U.S. and the Cold War, but, you know, throughout all of history. Yeah, and, and sorry, can I hijack yeah, this for just a second? Yeah, yeah and, and I'm curious because I, I do see another another trend in in other areas of Cold War history and other uh, other regions of sort of an increased focus on perhaps uh, social history of the Cold War, um, mm -hmm. student movements, uh, uh, popular movements. Um, is, is there any kind of... Uh, uh, of of work in the Turkish archives that that perhaps could be could be done on on that or or is that a, a, a ripe ground for for um, future study? That's a great question because uh, I was just having a conversation yesterday with a friend of mine about the Cold War, um, a colleague of mine about the Cold War in Turkey. You know, when you ask anyone from the Cold War generation in Turkey what the Cold War meant. Uh, I would say it's very unlikely that you'll get an answer which contains Moscow DC competition. You'll probably, uh, or nuclear non-proliferation, you'll probably get a very ideological answer. You will probably, you know, first of all, the person will try to say, you know, he's uh, from the left end of the political, you know, the spectrum or right end of the political spectrum. It's more perceived as a left-right struggle, which, hmm. you know, in, 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 in which can branch out into uh, a bunch of other fields that that you just rightly you know said social history so to fully uh, give that picture I think you're going to need access to the to first of all the uh, the security archives and and you know I think um, that's going to be difficult because 
in the prime ministerial archives, you find, for instance, documents uh, that relate to which kind of journals are banned from entering Turkey, which kind of hmm. magazines or books uh, are censored, etc. Uh, which kind of, in the prime ministerial archives in Turkey, uh, you, you can get to which kind of journals were being monitored. And, and the, the, the prime ministerial office, for instance, had them translated as in like Armenian or Greek or, you know, any of the minority papers that were published mainly in Istanbul, probably in Istanbul, uh, they were being translated into uh, Turkish for the prime ministry. Uh, so they were, you know, that's a very interesting uh, sort of part of the Cold War in Turkey that people, uh, you know, remember the Cold War more like that rather than a superpower rivalry. So it's absolutely, you're absolutely right. Uh, the challenges, of course, those those uh, security archives and then police archives you, you see in, in Latin America as well. They're the those are are where they're a ripe uh, ground for for material and evidence and uh, and, and documents. But it's it, there can be very very sensitive and exactly. uh, difficult to to get into and access. And absolutely. I, so I think um, we'll we'll have one more question. Our sort of uh, kind of standard question that we like to ask of all of our guests. Sure. Um, when you were doing research for your book, uh, Turkey and the Soviet Union during World War II, um, and you got into these the Turkish diplomatic archives and, and you were working in these um, uh, Turkish Republican archives, um, did you find anything that that really kind of changed your perspective on the subject or, or had a particular impact on you um, that you were able to sort of, you know, come away uh, with a, a different understanding than, than maybe you expected? You know, the most striking aspect uh, you know, my, how do I put it? The most entertaining aspect of the arduous task of working in the archives is that if you, when you see a document that talks about an issue that you have in your computer, in your laptops, uh, you know, uh, archive from the Russian archives or from the, from the American archives and a different narrative of the same Story. Take Potsdam or, you know, what the Turks thought of Yalta conference. Hmm. Uh, they were watching it from afar. Uh, and, you know, the Levadia Palace was, was, was really, like, scary from the other side of the Black Sea for, for the Turks, what, what the conversations might be taking place in those rooms. Uh, and, then, and then you read the Russian accounts and the American accounts, which you get, you know, kind of a similar story. And you have the Turkish account about Turkey's own fate. That's... The, that's the one place I think uh, that got me really excited. I had, you know, you know, I, this book talks, my book that talks about uh, the entire World War II uh, period, but there were some ep critical episodes, like the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, uh, when the moment that Operation Barbarossa was unleashed, uh, you know, very critical moments of World War II, turning points, and you have a neutral country, right, a non-belligerent country like Turkey trying to stay neutral, uh, you know, and, and, and you can see the price they paid uh, for that neutrality uh, in terms of their portrayal uh, in Western or Eastern media, in Soviet newspapers, uh, or in American newspapers, or in, you know, British newspapers. You can compare it with, a, you know, a, a, a different angles uh, and, and prisms, really, like, you can see what the U.S. government thought, what the U.S. media thought of Turkish neutrality versus what the Russians, what the Kremlin thought and what the Soviet papers wrote about Turkey's sort of neutrality and different points of time. Uh, sometimes this was construed or misconstrued as you know, pro-Nazi silence alliance. 
sometimes uh, an alliance with the imperialist American imperialist powers of Anglo-American whatever imperialism, uh, and it changed so many colors, and that, that was really interesting, I think. And in the Cold War, you have even more dimensions uh, to this, I think, very interesting story. And you know, I, my only hope, and I will end there, uh, is that at one point in the in the U.S., um, uh, we're going to have uh, more scholars doing modern. Uh, Turkish history as much as they're doing imperial like Ottoman uh, history at some point. Let's hope that. Well, it's it's really fascinating. It's really great to kind of uh, get to hear about some interesting kind of um, perspectives that we don't get from from just looking through the the Soviet and American archives and understand that the whole world, you know, is affected yeah. by these sort of things and and uh, um, their voice is equally important. So. And it's a good exercise, I think, for for when I whenever I we consider any any moment a, or flashpoint in Cold War history, um, and I, I have been guilty of this myself throughout my career, uh, mm-hmm. is to to try to step back and and not see it through such a, a, a simple lens as you know a DC Moscow uh, direct line and and like it's it's branching out and and, and painting a fuller picture is really uh, something that I think. Uh, Historians uh, owe to uh, owe to, owe to the, the field and, and scholarship and future generations to to understand uh, uh, these times. So totally. thank you, thank you very much for your work, <laughs> and thank well, you for thank joining you very us much today. For her. Yeah, um, thanks uh, for inviting me and for letting me uh, speak about the Turkish archives a little bit about my work. But um, the more demand uh, for the Turkish Republican archives comes from researchers, uh, I think that I will have more opportunities to write. You know. It's a collaborative, collective effort, uh, so to speak. I look forward to Thanks. reading every project from here on in. <laughs> well, once this podcast gets out, we'll probably drum up a whole bunch of other uh, interest and, and support. So you're going to have a whole, a whole slew, a rush yeah. of, of people to the Turkish archives. I, I, yeah, except the problem there in Ankara, not in Istanbul. And that's, uh, well, you know, some people are fans of Ankara. I don't know. <laughs> As always, you can get in touch with us by emailing coldwar at wilsoncenter.org. We'd like to thank Graham Norwood for this podcast's music. You've been listening to International History Declassified, a podcast focused on history, historians, their sources, and their methods. International History Declassified is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. And for more information on a world of topics, issues, and ideas, please visit wilsoncenter.org. International History Declassified is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars.